Amen. If I could draw your attention just to the beginning of the chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 1, it says that Jacob called unto his sons and he said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you that which shall befall you or that which you will encounter, that which will come to pass in your lives in the last days. Gather yourselves together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and hearken. That means incline yourselves with the attitude and the heart to uh, sow these things into your existence, to do the things that are being spoken and to live according to these words. So hearken unto Israel, your father. And so uh, as we come to this second to last chapter in the book of Genesis, and we begin now to lower the landing gear of our Bible study through this amazing book of origins, um, we come also to the end of Jacob's life. And uh, he is now um, about to go to be with the Lord. He has lived 147 years. He has given birth to 12 sons and at least one daughter. Uh, he has a history with God that had um, amazing highs and also some incredible lows. He has an amazing experience. Um, and he's now come to a point in his life where he has this incredible spiritual clarity, which can happen uh, at the end of a person's life, especially when they know the Lord, that they have the perspective of the past to be able to um, have seen as they've walked the path God's faithfulness and his ways and being in a place where now they have nothing in front of them but eternity, they also have this amazing view of the future. And so Jacob is in this place, and as he is, he now calls his 12 sons, um, you know, not Ephraim and Manasseh at this point, but he actually has Joseph there uh, representing them as well. And um, he is essentially going to give to them the last will and testament. And that's what this chapter really is. It's the last will and testament of Jacob. And that's kind of something that all of us are familiar with in our culture. Uh, you know, that's the thing that we look for when a person passes away, um, what was in their will. And so what their will essentially will communicate is um, what they're going to do with everything that they had, how it's going to be distributed, uh, their final wishes, um, their, their, their resting place, anything that is pertinent to them um, that they can't communicate after they die, they technically put in their will so that that can then be uh, administered by the, the people that remain. And so this is Jacob's last will, but it's a little bit different than a last will that you and I would understand because in our day and in our time, when we look at a last will, we're basically looking at what's going to happen with um, the things that they had. In other words, what are we going to get? <laughs> we look at that when we look at the will and Jacob's will is different and that he doesn't mention one word really of what they're going to get of his, but rather his entire will is what, they're, what his descendants, his kids, what they're going to become. And so it's not an inheritance of possessions, but rather it's a foretelling of their destiny. And, and that really was the way a last will was uh, in Old Testament times for the spiritual people of God. What was more important to them was not what was left behind, but what would become of them in the future. And so that's essentially what Jacob is going to give to them. Um, there's a lot of people, I don't know if it's still happening as much, but just a couple of years ago, there was a big thing with Ancestry.com. 
you know, where people, my father and my sister kind of got into it a little bit, um, where people were very interested in finding out their roots, where they came from, uh, their, some of their family history and all. And now you can kind of get a DNA test uh, and you can find out a lot of that. You can find out if you're uh, 124th Native American, you know, or if, if you're, you know, you, you, know, you can kind of just technically find out all of these things about your roots and your past uh, and I think it's a great business because you can't prove anything. I could have started that business and I would be a gazillionaire right now just making these reports. Yeah, you're a little of this and a little of that. And, you know, and you're going to believe me because how, how are you going to prove it otherwise, right? You know, but, um, but, but we, have this, we have this thing in us that at some point in our life, um, I think it's probably common to all of us that we want to know where we came from. You know, and a lot of times it comes out of this thing of like, why am I the way I am? And if I can make sense of it, you know, if I can blame it on the Irish, you know, or if I can blame it on the Polish, or if I can blame it on, you know, whoever, that, that I'm messed up like this, that just helps me a little. It makes me feel better about myself, but I want to know where I came from. But what if there was not just an Ancestry.com, but there was a Destiny.com? And somehow you could take some of your DNA, you could take a little bit of information about yourself and plug it in and not find out where you came from in the past, but where you were going in your future. And you could look forward beyond the point of your death and kind of see what was going to happen in the lives of your children and of your grandchildren, not just one or two generations out, but even four or five, six hundred years out into the future. And I think that, that if that was possible, that would catch on a lot more steam, um, of course, if it was verifiable and credible, you know, than uh, simply knowing where I came from. And I think the far more important thing for all of us is not where we began and where we came from, but where we're going to end up at the end. Where are we going to end up at the end? And that's essentially what Jacob now gathers his sons together to talk to them about. Not what they're going to get, not where they came from, but he's going to talk to them about where they're going. And the reason that we know that's the case is because we saw right there in the opening verse, he tells them that the purpose of this uh, gathering is that he might tell them what's going to befall them in the last days. It says that right in the first verse. That word befall literally is translated encounter. And, and to encounter something is literally the coming together of two things. There's an encounter. So their path, their future destiny, and a set of circumstances or events. And so you have these two things that are on a trajectory. And essentially what he's saying is I'm going to tell you what your descendants are going to encounter in the future. There's going to be an encountering these two paths coming uh, together. And so he in, uh, uh, encourages them and exhorts them to listen, to lean in, and to incline themselves to the things that he's about to say. Because what he's about to show them, what he's about to tell them, is how their earthly lives, these 12 sons, how their choices that they made during their lives, and how their character and the formation of their character throughout their lives, how that is going to affect future generations of their descendants. Now imagine that for just a minute, that your choices, that the character that you cultivate in your time here on earth, and the definition of your life, the description of who you are as a person, to realize that that has an effect on future generations of people. And so he's going to tell them, this is how those things are going to affect future generations. Also, 
how those things, how the family line of each of the 12 sons is going to impact or not impact world events. And so each of these 12 sons that's going to become a tribe, a segment of Israel, is going to affect the world in particular ways. They're going to leave fingerprints, and they're going to turn the course of humanity, and he's going to explain to them how their lives are going to either impact or have no impact on future uh, world events, and then finally, how, um, what their eternal legacy will be and their place in history. So their reputation eternally and the mark that they're going to leave on world history when all things are said and done. And so this would become an amazing point of interest for them. I mean, if you were one of these 12 and you were about to hear destiny.com, you were going to hear what's going to happen in your future, you would tune in and you'd be very interested to hear what it is. And so Jacob does that now and he has these 12 sons and he begins with the firstborn. He begins with Reuben. Reuben gets to go, for, go first as he comes forward now and in verse 3 we get to hear what Jacob has to say to his oldest son, Reuben. He says in verse 3 to Reuben, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn. He was the firstborn, the first son of Jacob. The firstborn that would technically and have the right to the, 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 the preeminence among the family. And, the, and by the way, uh, a couple things just before we even get into this. Um, two things specifically that are important to, for us to understand foundationally in terms of what Jacob's about to say is that first of all, we've got to understand that all 12 of these guys are saved people. That in, in some way, they have a faith in who God is and in God as the substitutionary atonement for their sins in the Old Testament context, and all of these men are believers, and we will see them and shake their hands in heaven if, if it works like that, <laughs> you know, and if we can even come close to that. I don't, I don't know exactly, you know, but, but these men are saved men, and we know that because we read twice in other places in the Bible where their names, these names, these 12 names, are written on the gates of that eternal city. And your name is not written in heaven unless you are there. Because if you're not there, then the memory of you is blotted out from under heaven. You, you're, you, you were like not remembered by the people in heaven. So these guys are saved. And that's important to know because some of the things that uh, Jacob's going to say to them is going to make you think that maybe they're not saved. You know, but they are. The second thing that's important to, to know is that what each one of these men are interested in is to have that right of the firstborn. Now, technically, that would automatically go to the firstborn. You know, the person that was born first, in this case, that would be Reuben. And that person who was the firstborn in the family, that person would get a few things. They would, first of all, get a double portion of the inheritance. Now, Jacob already gave that to Joseph. So we know that this thing's going to be divided up some other way here because Joseph already got the double portion of the inheritance. We saw that in our chapter last week. But they would get a double portion of the inheritance. What they would also get was family leadership rights. They would become the preeminent patriarch, the one that would become the spiritual leader that the baton of leadership or eldership would be handed to the person that was given the right of the firstborn, and they would become that one. And so they were after that. And then the third thing that the, the right of the firstborn would, would give, especially in this family, would be the, the, the family 
or the head through whom the Messiah or the Savior, the promised one, would come into the world. So in all of what Jacob's about to say to these 12 sons of his, that's the thing that every one of them wants the most, is who's going to be the firstborn. And we have seen this kind of civil war amongst these boys as they were growing up, trying to jockey for that position. You know, they sold Joseph because he looked like he was the favorite, and so they got rid of him. And then Reuben kind of did something to Bilhah, you know, to, to kind of like sabotage Rachel's handmaid's kids. And, you know, there was this thing that was constantly going on with these guys to see who was going to become this privileged person. And so they're leaning in, who is it going to be? Now, having said that, as he begins with Reuben, contextually, that right is Reuben's to lose because he was the firstborn and he's still alive at this point. And so it would be natural for Jacob to look at Reuben and it would be natural for Reuben and all of the others to just think that it's going to be him. This is going to be Reuben. But what does he say to Reuben? Notice this. He says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Wow, this is looking real good now for Reuben as Jacob just begins and unfolds. He gives four things to describe Reuben. He says, first of all, you're my might, which Hebrew it means is strength. He says, you're my strength, which in Hebrew means my energy. He says, my dignity, which is highness or uh, exaltation or ego or uh, you know, dignity in the sense of royalty, the one who um, is exalted and exonerated in that position or place where he would be... Um, able or competent to rule. And then finally, my power, which is my force. So there's an influence and a strength. And so essentially what he's saying to Reuben here when he's given this description is that Reuben, you have all of the tools, all of the qualities, all of the necessities of leadership, of prominence, of influence, of royalty, and of lasting legacy that you are the one that has all of these things that are necessary to carry the family name and the family line into the future. You have amazing potential. But, by the way, did you know everybody has a but? Two arms, two eyes. Verse 4, unstable as water. You shall not excel. He says to him here first, he says that you are unstable. The word means that you are reckless and you are unbridled. And then he compares him to water and the outcome, he says that you will not excel. The same word that's used in verse uh, three, where he says the excellency of my dignity and the excellency of my force or my power. In other words, you have all of the potential but you're not going to measure up to it. It's not you. You've fallen short. You're not going to live up to the potential because he says that you went up into your father's bed and you defiled it. You went up into my couch. And so he basically reaches back into that place in Reuben's history where Reuben had sexual relations with Jacob's handmaid, Rachel's handmaid, Jacob's concubine, and Reuben slept with her, essentially defiling her, and we don't know what his motive was for that. We talked about that when we studied chapter 35, where the event took place. 
But because of that act of moral failure, Jacob now says to him that he will not excel, that he's not going to be the one that carries the birthright. Because of a lack of moral stability, essentially is what he's saying, you will not excel, you're not going to come up to it. He says you have the moral stability of water. Now that's an amazing thing. Think about that for just a minute. You have the moral stability of water. That's a great picture for me. Because I, I need water, okay? I appreciate water when I need it for things that are necessary, but I hate water when I don't want water crossing certain barriers and boundaries. And I just had a thing in my house just this week, Sunday, by the grace of God, I had to go into the room where my well comes in and find something. And I went in there and that, you know, the blue well tank, it exploded. I think the thing is like 50 something years old and it was just like, like pouring out. And there's, I walk in and there's a pond, you know, and it's like, okay, the plans just changed for the day. And of course, it had to be a Sunday, right, when you can't just go and buy one of these things, you know. So, and you need water when you have seven people in your household. And so, you know, over the course of this repair, I discovered three other places where water was leaking out of pipes, you know, and this whole thing. And you just get to this thing where you hate water. And here's why. Because there, listen, this is important, because there is not a boundary in the world that can stop water. You've played rock, paper, scissors, right? You know, and scissors beat the rock and the paper beats the rock, you know, but the, you, know, you, get the, you get the idea. If you added water to that game, water wins. Okay, because nothing, nothing stops water. The Hoover Dam will not stop water. A rubber membrane will not stop water. A metal tank will not stop water. Water is amazingly rebellious, and it crosses every line, and just give it enough time, water wins. Water gets in. And that's one of the properties of it. And essentially what Jacob is saying to Reuben in this thing is that you have the moral stability of water. Meaning you can set up your barriers, you can put things in the way to try to keep yourself from being morally frivolous or from being unbridled in your lusts or fulfilling the desires of your flesh. You build whatever barrier you, you want, but at some point that barrier is going to fail because you don't have the moral fortitude to obey and adhere to the boundary that's placed before you. And that's what Jacob says. And because of that, because you blew through this moral boundary, you will not excel. And so essentially what Jacob is saying to Reuben here is he's saying that you are a man of great potential, but it's ruined by unbridled behavior. You have great promise in what your giftings are in your enablings, but those things are sabotaged by a lack of self-control. And so because of unbridled passions and a lack of self-control, you have ruined the God-given potential and place that you would otherwise possess in the family future and in your eternal place, in your reputation, and in your legacy. He had amazing strengths. He was strong. He had talent. He had ability. He had hope. He was the guy that, you know, the, the, the prodigy son who gets the internship and the scholarship and who's the captain of the team, and who scores 1,600 on their SATs, and can go to any school they want to, and then begins the most amazing career, and they're just on this upward trajectory, and you don't have a quarter or a fraction of the talent 
that, that, that that's what Reuben was, according to the description of Jacob in all of this. And no one could touch him in terms of what he was as the total package. And what Jacob thought, or what Reuben thought that he was, is that he thought that because I am all of these things, this is my position to lose, and therefore I am too big to fail. That's what Reuben thought in his own mind, and then he failed. Now, when I talk about Reuben right now, I just want to make it very clear that who I'm talking to as we interact with one another is not that boss that you know that is so amazingly brilliant and smart. I'm not talking about your colleague that is excelling over you and that has always been one step above you and they, you know, make sure that you know about it, you know. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, you know anyone in your life that you compare yourself to and say, yeah, I know who the Rubens are in my life, all the talented, t- talented people, you know. I'm talking tonight to the person that's here tonight that is a joint heir with Jesus Christ. I'm talking to the person that's been strengthened with might in the inner man by the Spirit of God. I'm talking to the person here tonight that has the great and precious promises that have been given to the heirs of salvation. I'm talking to the person who has an inheritance that's reserved in heaven that fades not away, and I'm talking to the person that has the dignity of a king and a priest eternally in God's kingdom. And what does that mean? It means I'm talking to the man in the mirror. It means I'm talking to you and I. It means that when we look at Reuben here, we must see ourselves in the story. You know what's interesting about Reuben's uh, situation when he sinned with Bilhah? He, he, he slept with his father's concubine, and he seemingly got away with it. It tells us in the text that Jacob heard about it, but that he held his peace. He heard about what Jacob did, I mean Reuben did, but he didn't say anything to Reuben. He held it, he kept it to himself, which means that Reuben committed this act of adultery and treachery, but he was never reproved for it. There was never a point where there was discipline because of it. There was never judgment of God. He was never exposed. He was never outed. He was never brought to shame or brought to justice because of the things that he did. There was no Me Too story that broke out when Bilhah realized that women aren't supposed to be treated this way and, you know, she could take it to the press and say that I was abused. There was no lawyers involved. There was no FBI investigation to check into the credibility of her claims. There was absolutely nothing that happened all of these years. Reuben just continued carrying along as though this thing never happened. Now you say, why is it that there was no reproof? Why didn't God in some way reprove Reuben for this or bring discipline or chastisement into Reuben's life? I believe that the reason is because he didn't have to. Have you ever crossed the line on something and you know that you crossed the line? And, and you don't need to be told. You, don't, you just know for a fact that you crossed a line that you weren't supposed to cross. I know what happens in my house all the time. Sometimes I'll see one of my kids do something to one of my other kids. Or I'll see them just do something they're not supposed to do and they don't know that I'm watching. And I'll see them do it and they'll turn around and they'll see me watching and I'll just give them one of these. And I'll just stare. And they'll stop or they'll, you know, or they'll change or their face goes, you know, curtain comes over it and the whole thing. And there's an immediate knowledge that they just crossed a line, that they did something that was wrong. 
And that was very clear for Reuben. You don't sleep with your father's concubine. The Canaanites didn't sleep with their father's concubine. You just don't do that, you know. And he knew what it was. And I believe that there are times in our life that we do things, we cross a line, we fail, we fall, and we know that it's wrong, and God doesn't bring chastisement because of it. And that's a critical point when that happens. See, there's times that we kind of prove all things. Like, is this okay? And God just goes, and we go, okay, it's not okay. You know, I get it. I got it. You know, okay, Lord, I'm not to go that way. But there's times we do things. We know it's wrong. We wait. There's no response from heaven. And we go, hmm, maybe God, maybe he's okay with this. You know, and the whole thing. That's kind of what happened to Reuben. Now, we see evidence that Reuben felt remorse for what he did. He later on kind of like placated Jacob. He, he, he changed. He kind of reformed his ways a little bit. He never did it again. There was a change in his behavior. He was remorseful for what he did. But the amazing thing is this. Reuben never repented. There was never a point in Reuben's life where he came clean, where he opened up the vest and showed what was inside And he owned his own moral failure before God and before men. There was no repentance. There was remorse, but there was no repentance. Why? Because he didn't have to. He was too big to fail. He had the gifts, the strengths, the position. No consequences came. It seemed as though God looked the other way. And he thought that he had gotten away with it. You know, Reuben's not the last person that will do this in the pages of God's history. You know, we read about Samson. You know the story, right? Samson was too big to fail. Oh, God, I, I'm the judge of Israel. I can lift up the gates of a city and bring it up on top of a hill. I have supernatural strength. There's never been a Philistine or an army of Philistines that can take me down. I'm too big to fail. And so he blew through the moral boundaries that God had placed before him until the day came when the Spirit of God departed from Samson and he knew it not. We read about King Saul, the first king of Israel. He was too big to fail too. He was head and shoulders above all the rest. He had all the gifts and the talents. He had been given all the power. He was anointed by Samuel. He was given promise by God. And because of that, he was lifted up in pride and he began to blow through moral boundaries until the day that Samuel came and said, What meaneth the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? You have disobeyed the Lord and he has also rejected you from being king. He thought he was too big to fail and he was disqualified because of it. We read of King Solomon, the wisest, but he sinned against his own wisdom. He blew through the very boundaries that he preached so much against, thinking that he could somehow escape disqualification because he knew how to work the angles of escape. And a man that was given great wisdom thought he was too big to fail. And he found himself dying an early death, being given the sentence of a divided kingdom, and he was essentially disqualified from the future that God had for him. Well, for Reuben, he also was disqualified. He wasn't unsaved. We'll see him in heaven. But the sentence that came down upon his life is that you will not excel. And do you know that's exactly what happened? Do you know that there was no Reubenite that ever made a lasting mark in Israel's history? In fact, the Reubenites didn't even cross over into the promised land when Joshua made the conquest and divided the land. They were content to settle on the east side of the Jordan River. They were the first tribe carried off into captivity. 
And aside from a few that are mentioned on the pages of Scripture, there is no lasting mark, no judge or ruler that came from the tribe of the Reubenites. They did not excel. Nothing ever became of Reuben. He was disqualified because of his sin. He was denied the privilege he should have enjoyed. Now, Reuben never achieved, his descendants never achieved. But I want you to understand something before we move on to the next. It was not because of what Reuben did with Bilhah that he was disqualified. That's going to become clear in just a moment in our study. It was not because of what Reuben did with Bilhah. Do you know why Reuben was disqualified? Because he never repented. Because he held on to it, he buried it, he carried it to the grave, and thus he was disqualified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, the Apostle Paul gives us these sobering words. I just want you to listen to them. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? He said, So run that you may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we are running for an incorruptible crown. And Paul says this about himself. He says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly. I don't, I don't run without a purpose. I don't live my life with no purpose. He says, so fight I, not as one that beats the air. I'm not unintentional about the way I do things and the why I do things. And then he says this in verse 27. He says, but I keep my body under. That means under control. And bring it into subjection. That means obedience. I make my body obey my will and my mind. Why? Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. In other words, Paul himself recognized that all of the fruit that he bore in his lifetime, he had the potential of bruising the fruit and ruining the future of what he was, what he would be, if he allowed his flesh and his lusts and his passions to go unbridled. And when I forget, as a Christian, as a saved person who will be in heaven, but when I forget that my choices and my actions make a difference in my future, then I'm prone to affect what happens in generations to come and my own eternal standing as well. And so we learn from Reuben the importance of not thinking that we're invincible. Reuben was the almost invincible. Jacob turns his attention from Reuben and he begins to talk to two other brothers, Simeon and Levi, both at the same time. Look at verse 5. It says that Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are they in their habitations, their dwelling places. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, unto their assembly, my honor be not united for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and I will scatter them in Israel. Now this is incredible, because to these two brothers, he doesn't even set them up with something that gave them some hope. He comes right in, right away, with the indictment of, of, of wrong, the thing that they did. And what Jacob bases his words on when he talks to them is a single event that took place in their life, and it's what happened in the city of Shechem. You recall that Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, was raped by Shechem, the son of the king, the prince of the land. And when Dinah was raped, Simeon and Levi 
hatched a conspiracy with the men of Shechem that if they would agree to be circumcised, that they could be forgiven of the sin, that the prince could marry Dinah, and that the two families would blend and that they would trade and intermarry with one another. And so Simeon and Levi came up with this contract and they said, hey, if you guys all get circumcised, then we're free to interact with you. And so the men come together. They amazingly agree to the terms. And when they're recovering from the operation in those two or three days after when they're basically incapacitated, Simeon and Levi, the two brothers, went in at night and they slaughtered all the men of the city, stole all of their stuff, and took the women and the citizens as servants. And, and Jacob had no idea that that was going to happen. And he was in such a confused state in his own life at that time that he was like, what? You, you, you know. and, and, and these guys basically tarnished Jacob's reputation and caused the whole family to have to move in fear for their lives. An amazing uh, encounter or thing that happened in their lives. And uh, based on that and what happened because of it, Jacob says this about these young men. He says that they are angry, self-willed, filled with wrath, and cruel. That's his assessment of these guys. You, you're filled with anger, self-will, wrath, and cruelty, and I want nothing to do with you. And he says that my, what your destiny is is that you will be divided and scattered in Israel. And that's exactly what happened to Simeon and Levi. Simeon, you'll be hard-pressed to find the borders of his territory. He had a little segment that was kind of encapsulated in the greater tribe of Judah. And the Sibionites were kind of all over the place, some of them not even within the borders of Israel. And the Levites had no inheritance. They were dispersed throughout. They had cities in different places. They became the priests, but they were scattered, even as Jacob said. Now, what was going on with Simeon and Levi? And what does it speak to you and I in terms of our relationship with Christ and our eternal destiny? What these men were is they were men that were carried away by their emotions. They were men that reacted to things that happened in their life quickly, but they didn't respond appropriately. I don't know if you can relate to that where something happens to you and you react rather than respond. Has that ever happened to anybody else? Am I the only one uh, here? You know? But what happened with these guys is that something happened to them the, the, the daughter, their sister, was raped. And yes, that's a serious thing. It's injustice. It's wrong. It's a violation. They were rightfully grieved and offended, but something happened to them, and it stirred up and it created an emotion inside of them. And that emotion rightfully, justifiably, was anger. It made them feel angry. But the problem is, is that they interpreted that anger, not according to the facts of what was really going on in the situation, but rather according to how they felt. And that's what emotions are. Emotions are feelings. And when something happens to you and I, it conjures up feelings inside of us. And those feelings cause us to react or respond. Sometimes they trigger different emotions in us. And so what these guys did and what their error was is that they allowed their emotions to govern their actions. So they felt angry and they felt, and the key word in all of this is felt, they felt justified to go over and above what was fair and righteous in getting vengeance for the thing that had been done unto them. 
They allowed their emotions to govern their actions, and then they crossed the line of justice and equality because that's what it would take for them to satisfy their emotions in the things. We live in, in, a, in a time, you and I do, where we are increasingly led by how we feel. We're taught that in our schools and in our society is to evaluate things based upon our emotions, how we feel and not on the facts. I mean, and that has kind of permeated into every area and aspect of our lives. What gender do you feel like today? Do you feel more feminine or masculine? And you can kind of decide which bathroom you want to use or what pronoun you want to put before your name based upon how you're feeling today on things. And that, that has just kind of gone crazy in us that my feeling, if I feel this way, then that feeling is absolutely truth. Now, the problem with basing decisions, conclusions on my emotions or the way that I feel is that, listen, this is important, emotions never consult with facts before they trigger a response. Emotions base, are based completely on feelings. And so, I'll give you an example. Somebody does something to you or to me, and they make you feel stupid in the way that they uh, address you or the thing that they say to you. There's an encounter, and you just feel like, like this big when it's done. And so, you feel stupid, and so you, there's an emotional thing that's happened that triggers a response. And so, for some people, that's going to be anger. You're, gonna get an you're just going to fume. I mean, steam is going to come out your ears because of the thing. Other people are going to be wounded, and, and maybe they'll withdraw. You know, they'll sulk a little bit, or they'll feel hurt. It kind of ruins their day uh, on things. Other people might, might even break out in tears. You know, there's something that's happened, and it's triggered an emotional response within me. You know, and, and so that's what happened. Now, at the same time, someone can also do something that makes me feel smart, right? When people talk about gender fluidity, sometimes that makes me feel very smart, because I, I know what a male is, and I know what a female is. I have the facts on that. And so they're making me feel smart. Sometimes someone will say that truth is subjective, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. And I know what absolute truth is. And so that makes me feel very smart. Sometimes people say things like kids need to explore their sexuality. Or, or kids, you know, and they'll say things. And that makes me feel very smart because I understand where you know, real foundation is and where shaky ground is on things. But the, see, when I feel smart, that also triggers an emotion. Oftentimes, it triggers anger in me. Because I hear someone say something really stupid, and my response is, you are, what, are, you're ruining my world. You know, and so you understand, there's, there's something happening, and it's triggering an emotional response inside of me. And if I don't have structure in my life, intentional structure to interpret the things that are happening so that I can properly respond and not just simply react, then I'm going to begin to make mistakes and I'm going to cross boundaries. And that's exactly what happened with Simeon and Levi. They felt a certain way. They felt justified to respond according to those emotions and they crossed all reasonable lines of right and wrong uh, in doing the thing that they were supposed to do, um, you, you know, in, in, in seeking God on the whole thing. And so you have these guys carried away by them, and what do we do with it? So what do you do? 
How do we control the emotions that we have? And the answer is that we must allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to interpret the events in our life. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this. Listen, it says that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that, listen, it divides, it discerns, it separates, it defines or evaluates between the soul and the spirit. Do you see that? Now, the soul is the root of feelings, or the place of feelings, where emotions come from. The spirit is the root or the place of facts, what's actually true about a situation. And so the word of God discerns and it separates and judges between the way I feel and the actuality of what's going on in a given circumstance. And so if somebody makes me feel stupid and it brings up an emotion inside of me, that's an act of my soul. I feel stupid, someone making me feel that way. Now, if I were to take a minute and I were to apply the structure of reason to that, and I were to take a moment and ask the question, why do I feel stupid in this? You know, now I'm asking good questions. Okay, why do I feel stupid? Well, part of the reason is because I'm, I'm slow, okay? I am a person, and, and you probably won't relate to this at all, but I am a person that wins every argument I get into. Every argument. I win four days after the argument happens <laughs> and your laughter gives you away okay I have never won an argument during the argument not once and so I always feel stupid after an argument okay because I am I'm slow I'm a deep thinker but I'm a very slow thinker and it takes me a long time to sort through things and figure things out. Sometimes I don't know why I did what I did or why I'm doing what I'm doing, but somewhere in there there's reason and it takes me time to figure that out. And so sometimes I can feel stupid because I'm not strong in fast thinking. All right? Now there's nothing wrong with that. There's some people that are, that are fast thinkers and there's some people that are deep thinkers and there's some people that are good at both and some people that don't think at all. You know? <laughs> And, and those are the happiest people, you know. <laughs> but if I stop and I ask, why do I feel this way? Well, that's part of the reason. It's just because of the way I'm wired. You know, I don't think like everybody else. Sometimes I feel stupid just because I don't have all the facts about a given thing. I don't know all, all of the details on it. And so because I don't have the information, that doesn't make me stupid. Furthermore, why am I giving anyone the power to make me feel stupid? And the more I think about this, the more I realize that the fact that I feel stupid isn't the person's fault who's making me feel stupid. It's my fault. And so when I take that emotion and I bring it to reason and I allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to sort through it, now I know how to properly handle that emotion. And the emotion sometimes can just fade away that simply. I don't know if this happens to you. Probably you can't relate to this. But sometimes you have somewhere that you have to be. And so you get in your car and you go there, and as you're going, somebody cuts you off. And then yeah, it twists you up a little. And then you go a few miles more down the road, and someone else cuts you up. And then just as you're about to pass that barrier, they close that lane and that road, and you're stuck right there. You're the last one there. And you go, yeah, and you hit the steering wheel, and you, know, you, you fly off the hand. road rage, right? And it comes upon you. Now... Something has happened to you, 
It has triggered an emotional response. And now you've got to handle that emotional response. Yeah, you can either like start throwing signs out the window, you know, or you can start throwing words into your windshield, you know, that anonymous place where you can release all of those things that have been building up inside of you, you know. You can, you can do that. But really, if I stop and I say, why am I angry right now? Am I really angry about the person that just cut me off as though I have never cut off a thousand people in the course of a day, you know, and done these same things? Why am I really angry? And when I think about it, I realize that the reason I'm angry right now is because I gave myself 14 minutes to make a 15-minute drive and I didn't build any margin into my schedule at all to allow for a delay that might come. And so I'm upset because this person didn't read my script about where I'm supposed to be at the time that I'm supposed to be there. And if I stop and I just evaluate emotion next to reason, I realize it's not their fault and it's not this fault. It's my fault. I did this. And all of a sudden now I, I can get mad at myself. And I, can, <laughs> and I do that. You know, I think we all do that. What are you stupid? You know, we talk to ourselves in that way, you know. Sometimes you're five-year-old or your 16-year-old, or your 22-year-old doesn't like the things that you're saying to them. Do I need to finish this? And it triggers an emotional response inside of you. I feel disrespected. I feel angry. I feel frustrated that this person can't see everything rightly like I do, you know? And I have a, 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 a choice. I can respond according to my emotions and I can execute force and I can manipulate and I can make them do or I can remove privileges and I can bend their arm. I can twist things to my favor because I have that authority as a parent or I can take a step back and I can let reason come in between soul and the spirit and things and I can stop and I can consider, okay, what was I like when I was five years old? Or when's the last time I tried to get into the world of my five-year-old? Or what was I like when I was 20 years old and my parents wanted certain things from me? Or maybe there's a bridge that needs to be built here and, and I need to cross and compromise. Maybe my standards aren't right according to you know, the, the, the facts or, or, or the, the setting that we're in or their personality. And see, what, what happens is if we respond emotionally to things, we make a mess of things. But the word of God and the spirit of God have been given to us by God so that we can discern between emotion and fact and then we can respond rightly rather than react emotionally. And what characterizes a Simeon or a Levi, even in the body of Christ, is a person whose emotions are so out of control and out of sync with reason and rationale that they are continually making a mess of things. They're destroying whole villages when really there's only a little bit of justice that needs to be administered. They're killing whole families when really there's only one person that needs adjustment. Usually that one person is... There are many people that don't become what they're supposed to become in the body of Christ because they can't get their emotions under control. But the protection that we've been given by God is that we have the Word and we have the Spirit and we have the ability to have an honest heart before God. Now, these guys were confronted, but they were not reproved. And here's the amazing thing about it. Listen carefully. The reason why Simeon and Levi did not amount to anything and they were scattered in Israel. Listen, 
And catch this, if you don't catch this, you miss the whole study. The reason they were disqualified at the end of the day was not because they killed a whole village. And it wasn't even because they were carried away in their emotions. But the reason is because they didn't repent. They were confronted by Jacob because they embarrassed him, but they were never reproved and they never repented. They defended their actions, they justified what they did, and then they carried that recklessness onward with them into their future and they became defined in their character as those that could not control their emotions. They were disqualified because they didn't repent. Jacob then turns to Judah, and this is our final one, don't worry, you know. Jacob turns to Judah, and I can only imagine what Judah is thinking at this point. Right? We've just heard Reuben. Now, just to jog your memory just a little bit, Judah doesn't have a very good history. Judah married a Canaanite against the will of his father and mother. He failed as a father, and he lost two of his sons to immorality. They died because they were wicked before the Lord. He impregnated a hooker that turned out to be his daughter-in-law. And then when she was found to be pregnant, he told her that she needed to be burned at the stake before she revealed that it was him that had done it. And he was the one that crafted the contract that caused Joseph to be sold as a slave into Egypt. Now, all of these things are weighing in the mind of Judah, and here now comes Jacob, and he turns his attention, and he says, Judah, step forward. And I can only imagine what Judah's thinking. He's going, can we just skip this? Can you move on? Like, just get to Gad, get to Asher, you know, talk to these guys. I don't want to do this. You guys know Brian Regan is? He's a comedian. Um, just, I mean, if you ever need therapy and you just need to laugh, you know, just listen to Brian Regan. But he has this little sketch that he does where, you know, he wakes up on the day a science project is due and he didn't do anything for six months and it's due that day. And he said, so he took a Dixie cup and he put dirt in it and he brought it in and put it on his desk. And the teacher said, what is it? And he said, it's a cup of dirt. And she said, well, what is it? He says, it's a cup with dirt in it. Just put an F on it and keep moving. You know, that's... Judah, okay? Judah has a cup of dirt. That's what he's got right there. And, and, and so he walks forward and, and Jacob says, come here, Judah, and he, cup of dirt. That's what you got. Now, it, with that as the backdrop, I want you to listen to what Jacob says to Judah. Listen. He says, Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. You're the one. Your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. Your father's children will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you are gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion, as an old lion who shall rouse him up. The scepter of rulership shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. The chariots of fire of music is playing in the background. You know, the epic scene is building. The drums are starting to pound in the background. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be binding his foal or his donkey unto the vine and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine and his teeth shall be white like wool. He basically says to Judah, he says, Judah, you're the one that's going to have the preeminence. It's you that won the birthright, the most valued crown. It's you that's going to have authority. The kings and the rulers of Judah and of Israel are going to come from you. It's you, Judah, that has the promise. The Messiah, Jesus, the Savior of the world is going to come through your line and your descendants. And to you will be wealth. 
the fatness of the world, the fruit and health of life is going to be yours. It's all going to be yours. And you say, okay, where's the but? You know, that, this was bad. You know, like, I'm waiting for it. Where's the axe going to fall? That's it. He's got nothing else to say to him. That's the end of it. And you say, well, this doesn't make any sense at all. Because when you compare Judah's life and actions to that of his brothers, Judah is way worse. When you look at the amount of pain that Judah caused his father versus the amount of pain that Reuben did with Bilhah or that Simeon and Levi did, those were momentary things. What Judah did in selling Joseph, that cost Jacob 22 years of anguish. And you think, that's not even mentioned? That just gets erased? It's not even brought up and Judah just wins it? Listen, if you don't know God... At this point, you get very discouraged because you begin to think, listen, my behavior and morality means nothing on things. God has this thing predetermined, and it doesn't matter what I do. He's going to do what he wants to do. And if he's chosen me, he's chosen me. And if he hasn't, he hasn't. No, that's not what's happening. I mean, I read this and I thought, Lord, did you just like foresee praise music and you knew that the lion of the tribe of Reuben just wasn't going to cut it in a service? Hail, hail, lion of Reuben. Nah. Hell, Levi, Judah, Judah, yeah, Judah. <laughs> you know, Judah will prevail. That's, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. I don't care what he did. No. The difference between Judah and Reuben and Simeon and Levi was not that Judah was morally superior to them nor that they were morally inferior to him. The difference in Judah came down to one thing. He was a sinner, and he repented. He came clean about the things that he did. He brought himself forward as a failure, and in the process, he received grace And the Spirit of God transformed him because he repented, because he turned from his sin. He didn't sit in it. And in his humility, Judah, the repentant sinner, became the lion. Three times Jacob refers to him as the lifted lion. And this gives me hope. Here's why. Because it isn't Reuben's invincibility complex that caused him to fall and fail. It wasn't Simeon and Levi's emotional outrage and recklessness that caused them to fall. It was one thing. It was their pride. It was that they refused to own what they were on the inside and allow their sin to be forgiven and their spirit to be healed. And you say, what, what is it with God and this whole repentance humiliation, confession, like, you know, why, why does God do that? Like, what, what, what's the deal? Does he just want to humiliate me? No, 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 no. See, repentance is not about humiliation. It's about transformation. Because when we open our hearts, we're becoming honest before God. Psalm 51, verse 6, David declared when he was repentant after his great sin with Bathsheba, He declared these words. He said, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. He doesn't desire pain in the inward parts. He doesn't 
desire shame in the inward parts. He desires truth in the inward parts. He wants us to be honest with ourselves and honest with him about what we are on the inside. And the reason that he does that is not so that he can hold a moral stick over us forever and say, see how inferior you are. But rather, when we open our hearts in truth, he can come inside and he can begin to change things around. And do you know why none of Judah's sins are brought up before him when he's before Jacob here? Because he's not the same person he was when he committed those sins. And when the Spirit of God comes into our life because with honesty and openness we own what we are and we repent of our sin, he comes inside and he changes us from the inside. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, that whosoever seeks to cover his sin will not prosper, but he that repenteth or turns and forsaketh will find mercy. 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, when we repent, we let God in and he begins to cleanse and change. The worship team can come. We're going to close. Jesus said seven letters to seven churches. To many of them, he gave a call. He said, listen, you guys... Your names are written in heaven. You're saved. But some of you need to repent. And he gave various reasons to various different people that were going through different things. And then at the end of every letter, he said to him that overcomes. And then he gave some eternal treasure. I'll write his name. I'll give him a stone. New robes. The walk with me in white. Listen. The key to overcoming is not moral perfection because I'll tell you what, every one of us is going to fail like Reuben. Every one of us is going to be given over to some emotional wreck that we create through our sin like a, like a Levi or an Ephraim or you know, Simeon. But what we do with that then on the other side is going to determine everything. Do we carry it and bury it? Or do we repent of it and say, God, this is what I am, this is what I've done. And God, I've made a train wreck of things in my life because I've allowed these sins to come over me. We're going to close, and I just ask you to, to stand with me as we're about to pray. Would you all stand? Some of us here, we get that feeling sometimes that we are invincible. That we have the eternal security. It's once saved, always saved. I have the great and precious promises. I have a history with God. And nothing I can do can ever affect that. There can be, you know what, no, you, you, know, you, may, you may be right. Your name is written in heaven. But have you ever asked the question to yourself, what's going to happen to me in the end? The decisions that I've made, the choices and the character that I've cultivated, and how that translates into my place in eternity and my future generations of descendants. What if I told you right now, confident one, the one who's buried something inside, no one else knows about, and you don't want anyone else to know. What if I told you you could carry that secret to the grave and no one's ever going to find out about it? But when you die, you're going to leave that to generations that are to come and the effects of it. Or what if I told you that you can come before the throne of grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ, and there you can confess to God that thing that you've buried, and not only find mercy and forgiveness, but find power to change what's inside not only affect your eternity, but when you stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ, to never hear what you did brought up at all, just like Judah washed away.
Some of us here are emotional train wrecks. The things that we allow to trigger us and the response that is unmeasured that comes out. We find ourselves saying things to our spouses or to our kids or coworkers, making mess of things. We've ruined marriages. We've lost jobs. We've wounded people deeply. Tonight there's healing. There's forgiveness. Not in the reformation of saying, I'm going to change God. I'm going to build some... No, no, no. It's in repentance. It's in saying, God, this is what I am. I'm, I'm a sinner before you, and I have made a wretched mess of things that you have entrusted to me and blessed me with, and I don't want to do that anymore. And God, I want to be changed. Oh, Father, we just pray tonight, Lord, as we're here. Lord, there's not one of us, not one of us that wouldn't be disqualified if not for the grace and the mercy that you give. And so, Lord, as we're here before you, we recognize, Father, that there's not one. And if you would mark iniquity, who would stand? But we're asking you tonight, Lord, that you would give us that penitent heart and that we would find the place of repentance. And that you would move us, Lord, to not carry in stubborn pride something to our grave that will affect generations to come. But that you would help us by your Spirit to be different. That we would be healed and that we would have the full reward. So help us, Lord. Speak this into our lives. You're the God that sets the boundaries of the waters. And though there be no human force that can stop water, you say stop, and it stops. And I pray tonight if there's someone here that's struggling in a particular area, and they even maybe right now feel so discouraged because they've tried, to keep the water of immorality out. And the water always wins. You declared, God, that you were the God that says to the waters this far and no further. And so as we lay our hearts and our lives before you tonight, Lord, we pray those areas that we struggle, those things that we have need of change, that as we repent tonight, Lord, that you would speak to those waters and that you would do what we can so we're looking to you and we're trusting in you and we're asking for freedom in this place thank you for the cross in Jesus name Amen